My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast. Many thanks for tuning in today. Um, I'd like to wish you all a very happy new year. Um, my own was actually, actually did something this new year. Most of the time I'm fairly boring and me and my girlfriend just stay in, but um, this time we actually went to Wales. And um, yeah, what a nice place. Um, very uh, cinematic, I thought. That was a b- bizarre thing. Very desolate, uh, very kind of hilly with a life rolling fog coming in. I can certainly recommend checking it out. And uh, for one person such as myself who is actually going to be getting into filmmaking this year, I had a kind of a fair few ideas flying around my head when we were walking around the, the hills and whatnot. And uh, it's definitely somewhere I will be revisiting, hopefully, with um, a film crew in tow. I've decided I'm going to do a top 10 of 2011 show. I was kind of umming and ahhing whether or not I was going to bother. And I sort of thought, well, I didn't do it last year. And I suppose I actually really, really like listening to other podcasts when they do their top 10s of the year. And I know there was a post on Facebook last year by a former podcaster whose name I will not mention, but he was really quite um, dismissive of those podcasters who do do it a uh, best of. And I thought it was quite kind of ironic because I do do certainly recall this person doing exactly the same when they had their show. So I've um, decided that I'm not going to heed this person's uh, negative comments towards doing a show such that and uh, do my own. Now, 2011 was... A bit of a strange year for me personally because if I could sum it up in one word it would be work. I I suppose when I'm kind of like hypercritical of myself I tend to kind of perhaps say I'm a little bit lazy sometimes and I think last year proved the complete opposite actually because um, to give me a little background I've actually kind of got two jobs one uh, my own work and I actually work full-time for the local authority and it basically to give you some idea of my working day I would normally wake up about half past six and I would do about two hours of work, go to work, come home and then have to do my own work, which would normally last from about half past four to about anywhere between eight o'clock and ten o'clock at night. And that would be a pattern I would repeat roughly six days a week. And as you can imagine, it was quite knackering. And one of the things that kind of really annoyed me was that I really wanted to do more shows last year for the 24 Frames cast. And quite simply, I could not find the time. And Of course, I did have some free time, but... Most of that was kind of spent chilling out and kind of, you know, just kind of getting over the day, really. And the byproduct of that was I didn't really watch a massive amount of films last year or at least films that were actually released last year. So my list, um, although it wasn't a struggle uh, making it, I think it certainly I think next year's will uh, be a lot harder because um, quite fortuitously, actually, I am now able to um, ditch the day job, as it were, my local job at the council, and I can now just kind of work for myself. And the the, the uh, byproducts of that will be I will have a lot more time to sit down and do shows and hopefully kind of work on my own career because, you know, I, I appreciate most people go out there and work for other companies and what ha- whatnot, and it's something that's never really worked with me. I don't like working for other people. I'm a bit of a kind of a solitary kind of a guy. Well, I do have quite a few friends. I don't really like going into offices. They kind of like, they, they sort of, I don't know, they kind of depress me a little bit. And this kind of like uh, new year, I've managed to ditch that and kind of carry on with my own things. And of course, as I've mentioned it before, I will be kind of getting into filmmaking this year. So I've got a lot more time to kind of do my own things as well as do my own business. And it's kind of going to be quite an exciting year, 2012. Um, I'm really kind of like looking forward to it, very, very, very positive about it. But before I kind of go on about myself all the time, I am now going to do my top 10 of 2011. And I've got to be kind of like quite upfront with you. Some of these films um, have been spoken about ad nauseum, um, to be honest with you. 
a few of them were have were released in America in 2010. Now I have been quite strict on my rules for this um, top 10 in that they had to have a UK release date of 2011. So they may well have come out, and, and I know there was a couple at least which came out um, quite kind of like August, September in 2010 in America, but I have gone from the UK release date. So if there are some films that I'm talking about where you sort of think, well, you know, this kind of came out uh, before 2011, I have gone with the UK release date as my benchmark. So without any further ado, I'm going to get on with number 10. Oh, just a little kind of little offside uh, note there. They're in no particular order until the top three, which are in order. And um, that top three could flip at any time, really. So I've kind of gone more with what it is today. Um, I haven't actually had the chance to watch some of the films in the top ten again. And, sorry, in the top three again. And I'm sure if I did, I might change my mind. So as of today, this is my uh, top ten of 2011. Now, I absolutely love sport. And in particular, team games. Um, I like a lot of people in England, it won't come as much surprise. I'm a massive football or soccer, if you want to call it, fan. I have a team in every country. Um, I've even actually adopted a team in the MLS now. So if anyone supports the uh, Portland Timbers, please do get in contact with me. But there are certain sports that I have absolutely zero interest in. Absolutely. It, it can be on telly and I'll just sit there and go... I'll have to switch it off just on the basis that it bores me so much. And one of those is Formula One motor racing. And it seems quite strange because really it is quite an exciting sport. You have these kind of cars driving around at ridiculous speeds. But for some reason, I have never really been into it. I don't really have any interest in cars per se. Uh, a friend of mine recently bought a Porsche. And honestly, I mean, this, it was a fantastically expensive one. And honestly... We went for a drive in it, and I, I could not have cared less. Yeah, you know, it looks like, yeah, if someone gave me one, yeah, I'd be very grateful. But I'd rather spend £80,000 on a state-of-the-art home cinema, basically. I, I'm i just not that type of a person. It was quite funny, actually. My girlfriend and I are trying to buy a um, car at the moment. We can't really make up our minds. She's not that bothered. I'm, I have absolutely zero interest. We walked into a garage a few weeks ago, and the salesman came up to me and said, you look like someone who cares about your brake horsepower. And literally, I just smiled and walked out the shop because I thought I am the last person who gives a shit about brake horsepower, whatever that is. So it came as some surprise to me when I suddenly became interested in this film. And I didn't really know why I was particularly interested in it. And I, when it came out on Blu-ray, I bought it and I absolutely was gripped, moved and it did kind of spark an interest in the sport. Although I haven't really kind of like uh, followed up or anything. I think... I'm not sure even where we are in the season with Formula 1, but I think I might try and kind of watch a little bit more than I was. And that is the documentary by Asif Kapila Senna about the tragic racing car driver Ayrton Senna. Now, I think it's fair to say, obviously I have don't have much interest in Formula 1, but I do have interest in documentaries. And the thing about documentary films is you can often find yourself being completely fascinated by a subject which previously you didn't really have much interest or knowledge in. And certainly that was the case for me with Formula One. But what came out, I think, of this film, one of the reasons why I kind of, I, I think I, I got so into it, was it reminded me of the kind of gladiatorial nature that some, especially sports where it's just kind of like the individual, things like golf and you know, tennis and things like that, but where you have these people who are just 
really competing against themselves. Obviously, they have the great rivalries, but really, it is themselves who they are trying to better. And Ayrton Senna's life is in itself, I suppose, the kind of thing which screenwriters can't write as well. Here was a young, good-looking, wealthy guy from Brazil who went into a sport. And this is the thing about Formula One is it is quite an elitist sport. You know, we kind of we love our kind of heroes sometimes to be these working class types. Ayrton Senna wasn't like that. He was from a fairly wealthy family who got into motor racing and he eventually made it into Formula One. And one of the things that you come to admire so much about him in this film was people were kind of from Brazil were very embarrassed about the country. It was obviously a lot of poverty, a lot of crime. Um, it was a country that really had a lot of issues and many of the famous people from Brazil kind of abandoned it and kind of moved over to Europe. Senna didn't. He embraced his nationalism and the public loved him for it and rightly so because his success in fact became the country's success. He put so much back in to the country and he was really the underdog and the unfashionable person in Formula One because what you find during the course of Senna is that Formula One is an incredibly internally political sport. If the powers that be like you, you will be successful. If they don't like you, you may find yourself finding it very hard to win. And Senna was one of those people who the powers that be simply didn't like him very much. His greatest rivalry was with Alain Prost, although I have been informed that really he had an equally kind of bitter one with uh, the British racing car driver Nigel Mansell. But really the focus of Senna is his rivalry with Prost, who they go from being teammates to the most bitter, bitter of rivals. And... You find yourself really rooting for him during the film. But what obviously you know about it is the fact that Ayrton Senna died. And I remember um, the weekend where he died quite clearly. And it was, it, it didn't really kind of like, I wasn't really, I think I was like 13, 14 at the time. I, don't, I wasn't particularly into the sport. And I just remember sort of um, the news coming on and then he would, uh, I think they had switched off his life support. And I, I, I seem to remember the national outpouring of grief that happened in Brazil. I suppose to kind of compare it, it was a bit like when Diana died in Britain, there was that kind of, you know, national mourning, as it were. And the thing about the documentary is that you have a sense, I think, and obviously it's 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 because it's been made like this, but the fact that Senna had an inkling, I think, that there was something very wrong in the sport. And although he tried to kind of fight against it, he carried on knowing that there were massive risks and of course tragically he would I suppose pay the ultimate price it is I think kind of heartwarming to know that there has not been a death in Formula 1 since his accident the fact that afterwards the kind of the powers that be really looked at what was going on in the sport really started to try and trying to take driver safety um, a lot more seriously and I suppose the thing is that you think that these guys are getting paid you know what 10 20 million a year you know that they they know the risks as it were but they still have a right to the kind of the highest safety standards as anyone really and Senna's death gave the sport that and there hasn't been anything really like I said there's been absolutely no death since which is obviously I suppose he gave his life for a sport he loved and he actually bettered that sport and actually did something for his fellow drivers there is I suppose if you were going to at a stretch almost say there is I suppose a Christ-like allegory to his life. You know, here was someone who riled up the system, who kind of 
got the populace on his side and then paid the ultimate price so that the world could be a better place. So, you know, in that respect, I guess, um, you know, obviously I'm not a believer myself, but it, I think it was a comparison I was thinking about during the film. It is absolutely fantastic on Blu-ray. Um, really got a great sound mix to it on the DTS HD. The, the picture isn't that great, to be fair, because most of it is made of archival footage and um, the odd interview here and there. But it doesn't really matter. There's some fantastic um, in-car racing footage, which really kind of... I, I, you, you sort of get a sense of the kind of tremendous speeds that these guys are going at. I thought... I didn't actually realise as well that director Asif Kabir... I remember I've actually got a film of his called The Warrior, which came out about 10 years ago. And I remember him being kind of billed as the next best thing, uh, sorry, the next biggest thing in British cinema. And I remember seeing him on the news and things like that. And he was talking about uh, Warrior. Um, quite a good film as well. I can recommend uh, checking it out. And he sort of kind of disappeared after that. I, it, it was a bit strange, but I mean, I haven't really heard of him since this. The film was as well um, a pretty big success here in the UK at the box office. It's made just three and a half million pounds and that's quite impressive i think for a documentary i know it got a lot of support from um uh, writers like jeremy clarkson um kind of like i can well uh, yeah doesn't really kind of uh, need much explanation as to why he, he would like it but it was definitely a very big film it was you know a good seller on blu-ray and dvd as well and like i said for a sport that i really have no interest in this documentary really did kind of fire an interest in me and i just got so into the story and it was really did kind of tragic as well because um Senna kind of cam comes across as a fairly likeable guy. Pretty um, egocentric, I think it's safe to say. But, I mean, you know, most kind of great sportsmen are to an extent. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was really moved as well and touched by the end of the film. Uh, it was it was very sad. And uh, there's a wonderful little montage at the end sort of showing him as a kind of boy growing up and things like that. And his kind of first big wins and when he won the championship. And it, it really kind of got me. And it was a very well made, I think very cinematic piece of documentary filmmaking and i can certainly recommend checking out don't be put off by the fact that it's about formula one i think the uh, story in itself will be enough to kind of get you in and uh, keep your interest okay so number nine now i absolutely cannot stand the oscars i find them beyond irritating and they seem to get more and more tacky and awful every year i didn't watch any of the last one but I heard about people talking about the kind of the, the dance routines and the, the host banter and this kind of thing. And I just cannot stand it in any way, shape or form. Most of the time, the films that get nominated are of a certain type. And I hate the fact that you can have a seed. I hate, you've got, I hate the fact that we're in such a kind of money orientated kind of industry that you have you know, award season where you have the studios getting out their prestige films. I keep seeing trailers for War Horse and I just know this is being marketed as the kind of the big worthy Oscar film. And I, and it was so bad because it, I, I said to my girlfriend, I'm sure there'll be a scene, a cutaway where we'll see you know, the horse looking forlornly on. And by God, it's even in the bloody trailer. And that's the kind of thing I hate about the Oscars. This syrupy crap films that get nominated every year. The fact that they actually have a category for foreign language shows how insular it is i mean most of the films that get nominated in that category piss on any of the other nominations and are normally about twice as good as the the film that normally wins so when a film wins a load of oscars and gets all the awards and you see the kind of um the actors and the directors walking off with their trophies looking ever so pleased with themselves making kind of annoying speeches that everyone laughs like hyenas at there is a good chance i will not bother 
checking your film out. And of course, this is absolutely ridiculous and stupid because there are some good films that win Oscars. And what I tend to find is I, I spend the next kind of three years watching these films saying, oh, yeah, it's actually not that bad, actually. And, you know, I don't know why I was so off put it by the time. But I won't lose my lesson. I won't learn my lesson, sorry. I'm absolutely stubborn on this thing. I really can't be arsed with them. However, this year I made an exception and I was putting some films on my love film queue and I suddenly dis uh, came across a advert for The King's Speech and I rented the disc, put it in the Blu-ray and was forced to eat my words within about five minutes. Not only did I completely fall in love with the film almost from the off, I was absolutely gripped and moved by it throughout. Now, I am no kind of royalist although I did watch the wedding but that was mainly because of Pippa Middleton's ass. I have to be brutally honest with you but I absolutely got so into this film and I think the trailer as well just going back to that thing when, when I saw the trailer for this when the film came out I was like oh my god it just looks so awful and I saw obviously Colin Firth Helena Bonham Carter Jeffrey Rush and just thought yeah here we go the usual troupe of Oscars you know you, you always see these guys in the apparently Oscar worthy films and I saw the trailer where they're kind of doing the vocal exercise and stuff like that. And I just thought it's going to be this kind of smug, self-referential, hee-hee, so bloody upper class nonsense, bullshit costume drama that I will absolutely hate. And it, of course it is that to some extent. It is quite kind of, there's, there's a few kind of little uh, knowing little nods and things like that. But I absolutely fell in love with it. And the story obviously is that of King George and his... Um, speech therapist Lionel Logue who had uh, to overcome help to get the king to uh, be able to speak publicly which was something he wasn't able to do and what I kind of loved about the film was is that we have this kind of in England we have this kind of vision of the royal family where we kind of put them on this pedestal and they don't they don't seem very human to me in a lot of respects I saw them all kind of you know they all look the same. I know they're all slightly inbred, but they, they they just don't. Even when they try and get down with the kids, which uh, you know, um, Prince well, Prince William or whatever he's called, and Prince Harry kind of seem to. There's always that kind of veneer of them just being absolute toffs, and I, I can't really get over that. The thing about the King's Speech was it's still kind of very much, and obviously at the time it was made in the kind of the the royal family was a pretty big deal. But what I love about this film is that it made someone who's quite extraordinary seem very ordinary and that they have very real human problems and public speaking when you're in a position like that it's not really something that you can sort of say no it's not really my cup of tea I can't really be bothered really because you have to you have to, you know, he had to make these types of speeches you know, the nation in some respects was looking to him and you know what a burden to place on a human being and it wasn't really long actually after um, the war that um King George actually died and I, I think they said it was the stress of the war and he wasn't the most healthiest of person he was a ferocious smoker but um yeah it certainly took its toll on him and he didn't last very long afterwards but what I think kind of gripped me about it was obviously we know the fact that he's going to overcome this it was really I think a story of a person who really kind of his status and his position was like a life sentence and something that he wasn't kind of, you can say they were born into it, but that doesn't certainly mean you're born knowing what to do in that position. And I was moved by it. I found it, I, I laughed quite a lot. It was a very witty script and it's a, it, it's so kind of, you know, rewarding in that, to me anyway, the film was only made for a budget of about 10 million and it went on to make so much more money. But it, it's so refreshing to see a film that is really about good direction, good acting and a good screenplay. They are really the components that make great cinema and you don't need hundreds of millions 
of dollars to throw at the screen. You just need talent, really, to make good films work. And director Tom Herper as well, I really like his work. He's a TV director, really. Spent most of his career doing um, stuff in England. But I did really enjoy his uh, film, The Damn United. And it was weird because I didn't actually realise um, he directed that until I um, checked his... Uh, filmography on imdb and i instantly recognized the visual style because i really do love the way he shoots i'm a big big fan of space and i don't mean obviously space with stars but i mean actual kind of physical space within scenes and he seems to just kind of use space really well to kind of show how his characters are feeling and it is a really stylistically shot film um you could never t- I mean my girlfriend's mother was moaning about it saying she it just looked cheap and tacky and stuff like that. I don't think it did at all it didn't need to be any bigger than what it was it's a very small intimate story it has its moments of grandeur of course it does and then you know, but fundamentally it's a very very personal intimate story wonderfully told it was I think it deserved the success it had. And you know, if, if you're going to have to say a film you know, wins an Oscar for Best Picture, I mean, it certainly wasn't the Best Picture of, 2010, of sorry, 2011, but I could see why people would vote for it. It's, it's not going to kind of um, test you too much. It's just a, a really good, perfect way of spending a Sunday afternoon. And, you know, I, I, I've learned one lesson, which is to kind of get over this kind of Oscar prejudice when it comes to films, because it really is kind of like uh, self-defeating in the end. I would have loved to have seen this at the cinema. I can kind of kick myself now because I didn't go and watch it. But hey-ho, whatever. Um, just a quick word, though. I did do an episode last year in which I riled against Blu-rays and different kind of um, quality, depending on where you buy it. The American Blu-ray release of this film is so much better than the English Blu-ray release. For some reason, the English release is only 1080i. Um, and the image isn't poor by any stretch of the imagination. But I've seen the American DVD and it is noticeably better. And that just angers me so much. Why is it a British film? Why can't we have... I mean, not that anyone should have the better version, but, you know, what a crappy way of releasing it. I mean, 1080i, you know, that's absolutely pathetic for a film like that, and I was really disappointed. So if you can, do try and get the uh, hold of the American copy. It is region-locked, but um, there are ways, obviously, to get a uh, multi-region player like I have. But anyway, The King's Speech, absolutely loved it. Okay, it might not have escaped your attention, but we are on the brink of an apocalypse. Um, no, we're not going to have zombies running through the streets. We're not about to be invaded. We're not about to um, suddenly find some kind of bizarre weather pattern emerging over the world over, which is going to destroy everything. No, we are on the brink of a financial apocalypse, and it appears to be going on now for about three or four years. And if I see another news report that has a kind of... Um, I suppose it's meant to be a picture of like a graph going downwards with an arrow with panic written on it or something like that. Or news reports showing traders with their head in their hands crying by the fact that the quantitative easing hasn't quite worked or whatever. I'm going to fucking kill myself because I really have reached the point where bring on this apocalypse because the sooner we don't have to hear about it, the better. But it is a very baffling apocalypse because... Quite simply, I don't really understand what they're talking about. I keep hearing things about bonds and all this kind of thing and the fact that most of this debt doesn't actually really exist. And for a simpleton like me, I just sort of sit there going, well, just, you know, if it doesn't exist, then what is everyone getting so bloody worried about? But the simple fact of the matter, there are um, people being really affected by this. I mean, I've noticed the um, our weekly shop has gone up, for example. I do the food shop in my house because um, I'm the bitch, basically, but... Yeah, I've noticed that things have got a little bit more expensive. Petrol streams absolutely astronomical. 
um, I noticed VAT has gone up, which is obviously um, detrimental to my DVD buying. But I think it is too important almost to kind of be that ignorant as to what is going on. And the next film I'm going to be talking about, Inside Job, will in some way, I think, inform you as to the origins of this disaster, why it happened and why really we're absolutely still in exactly the same position as we was before this catastrophe began. I'm at present loving the work of the documentarian Charles Ferguson. He seems to be able to ignite an anger and passion in me, which I think someone like Michael Moore, I, I do like the work of Michael Moore as well, I'm not one who's kind of like, I know it's really fashionable to not like Michael Moore, but I actually really do like his work, but he doesn't kind of enrage me as much as Charles Ferguson works. It's not because it's bad or anything, but because it just makes you so aware of how screwed things are in this world. An inside job is, I think, really should be shown in schools and shown anywhere where someone says, oh, I've no interest, I don't really understand all this. Because what comes out of this film is a tale of greed and sheer absolute disregard for humanity. The financial institutions that have caused this chaos are shown to be nothing more than a bunch of utter criminals who are propped up by politicians and governments who are quite frankly too scared of them to ever really rock the boat. And I really can't kind of go on too much about you know, what the film's actually all about. I, I, to be honest, I don't even understand some of it myself, but it does do a pretty good job of simplifying really the kind of the basics that underlie the financial crisis and how easily really with more regulation the whole thing could have been avoided and this one will actually act as a companion piece to another one I'm going to be talking about um, in a minute but whilst I was watching it I was kind of just really acutely aware of how unjust our world is. Now to give you um, an example really in Manchester uh, it might you probably remember in August there were some riots and basically a group of absolute knobheads went on the rampage through the city centre and there was a kind of public justifiably outcry at what had happened and along once the police began to kind of start making arrests and things like that people began to get sent to prison and there was one woman who was sent to prison for a year because she licked a stolen ice cream there were two lads from Warrington, a town nearby, who were given four-year sentences for trying to plan a riot on Facebook. And um, this riot never actually happened. They were just done for trying to plan. They got four years. Now, t those punishments might seem quite harsh to others. They sort of kind of had a more sort of, I know, I expect a few people who were a bit, well, well sodom, you know, they uh, they were going to cause chaos, so um, they're going to go to prison. And, you know, fair enough, if that's your opinion, you know, you, you're more than welcome to it. However, when you watch Inside Job, there are heads of banks who knowingly allowed for the mess that we are in now to happen so they could get incredibly rich. And in the knock-on effect of this has been mass unemployment across the world. It is something which we are all so aware of. I know so many people who have lost their jobs. I know so many people who cannot get a job. In the third world, especially in countries that kind of do most of the producing for the kind of the, the so-called developed world, 
it's been even harsher and really the kind of difference there is between having a job is a matter of life and death there's no kind of social support and basically it has totally and utterly ruined the lives of millions of people the world over and what's happened to these people well absolutely nothing they are still free to walk the streets they're probably even richer than uh, they were before the whole thing started and it just seems so unjust that the kind of social elite can effectively do what they want and they can have so much power over our lives and there is absolutely nothing we can do about it and inside job angered me a lot and i understand um the films are rated by matt damon and i understand he was absolutely uh enraged by it also and actually went and protested down at the stock exchange but i don't think you, it's a film i think that transcends political boundaries you don't have to be kind of like you know conservative democratic or whatever you, you know this will kind of I think really annoy anyone who I guess is able to think for themselves you know the, the facts are there it's not you know it's interesting as well because it folks really just turn the screws on a few people who instantly become very irate with him and you just know that these people are so out of touch with reality that something like this should have been the wake-up call the world is needed and it hasn't been there is a really kind of chilling um conclusion to the film in which you sort of learn that there are several recommendations that were made to world governments in order to kind of stop it from ever happening and none of them have been heeded and it kind of annoys me because i hear politicians in this country kind of talking stuff about cracking down on the banks and they do nothing and really it's just rhetoric so that the proletariat think that something's going on and they kind of and whilst their kind of rich chummy mates can uh, carry on making as much money as they want and I would sort of say it's really well for a, um, a, a documentary. It's incredibly cinematic. It's shot in the two three five one um, anamorphic ratio, and it has some absolutely um, fantastic shots of um, cityscapes and stuff like that. Really, I mean, you know, it's a it, it's a genuine cinematic experience. This film, and I think it's too important not to see it. I really, I really do. I think it's educational. It's entertaining as well. You know, it's a very entertaining film. Very well made. And like I said, I think it will kind of um, kind of piss you off. And I think you, I think we've got a right as a, um, as a as a world really to be pretty annoyed at these people. And it just irritates me even more that they have essentially got away with it. But like I said, this film does tie into another one I will be talking about in a short while. But at number seven, I've picked a film which kind of knocked me for six and. I don't know, perhaps it's kind of a form of patriotism coming out here, but number seven, I've chosen Danny Boyle's 127 Hours. Now, I keep calling this film 127 Hours Later as well, which I think is pretty kind of obvious why I might be doing that. So if I do do that, you know, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm well aware I keep making a mistake. But you imagine Danny Boyle after the Oscars, when you've just won Slumdog Millionaire, a film which looked destined to kind of go out on straight to DVD, that has made a couple of hundred million, I think he might even be more, worldwide box office. And you would imagine he could have done absolutely anything he wanted. I would imagine the the kind of the studios were busting themselves to get him signed on to one of their films. But Boyle doesn't sell out. He doesn't kind of go and do the uh, Rush Hour 4, or he doesn't kind of take up the reins of a Transformers film or whatever. He doesn't kind of go and sit in with Spielberg and make some Spielberg bloody proxy film. So what he does is he uses his power and his clout to make a film that he'd been wanting to make for a number of years. And that was the story of Aaron Ralston 
played by James Franco, who was a climber who, you probably know, got his arm stuck once in a rock and had to stay there for 127 hours before he had to make a decision, which was either stay and die or hack his own arm off. Now, you might think that this is going to be quite a possibly, I suppose, a quite a bleak film, I guess. Um, you know, it's a pretty harsh subject and it certainly has that... Um, yeah, there is a kind of a car crash type fascination with this film. And we, you know, we've all been there. You're on the motorway, the traffic slows down, you see there's an accident up in front. And you get to where the crash is and you slow down, you have a look. Now, we, I don't think we really consciously think that we're going to see the most horrific thing that we could ever think of. But there is a chance that might actually happen. And I think 127 hours. When I, when I knew this film was being made, obviously the, the number one thing that everyone thinks about is, well... He's going to have to cut his arm off at some stage. And of course, he is going to, and we do see it. But this is so much more than just the story of one man cutting his arm off. And it's so much more of a film than just building up toward this moment. Boyle knows first that he has to create a person who we care about. So when the scene comes, we are genuinely scared of what is going to happen to this guy. And the brilliant thing that Boyle does is that he doesn't make Ralston out to be a kind of the worst person on earth. He doesn't make him out to be the best person on earth. What he makes him out to be is a human being. And there were so many things in the film that I could quite easily recognise were thoughts that were in myself. You know, I don't call my mum as much as I should. I, I have treated people quite badly in the past. And, you know, thankfully we've kind of, you know, it's, it's not kind of had any kind of uh, huge repercussions for me. But I suddenly felt like I knew this guy. And normally, I don't really like these kind of like extreme sports type of people. I find they annoy me a little bit. But there was something about him that I just connected with. And I could see so many things in myself that were in him. And essentially, 127 Hours is a film about realising who you are and what your life is. And I guess it's going to be a theme of my top 10 this year because um, my number one, I think, I will be getting a, diving a lot more into this type of subject. But I honestly felt that afterwards I felt such an appreciation of my life just as it is. And, you know, I don't go out every day changing the world around me. I don't go kind of out. I don't, I don't sort of at night high five myself as to what I've accomplished. But I do really enjoy my life. And... Rolston was one of these people, and I, people who I think loved his life, but realised he could just be a little bit of a better person at times. And cometh the moment, and quite rightly, Boyle could have done it in any number of ways. He could have, you know, cut away. We could have just seen Rolston's face and heard it, but he actually decides to go into really explicit detail as to what he had to do, and it is not gratuitous at all. It's disgusting, it's very hard to watch, but it is completely and utterly justified in the context of the film. And I think you can kind of get quite metaphorical about it, but for me, sometimes it's about, you know, we all have to lose something of ourselves in order to move on. We also have to cut his arm off. Sometimes we have to get over things and move on, whether it be, I don't know, an argument you've had with your best friend or your wife or your girlfriend or whatever, or just something that, you know, you kind of keep coming back to and it's holding you back and you have to just let it go. And obviously for Ralston, he had to actually hack a piece of his arm off. And there's no sort of, this is you know, this wasn't a beautiful moment. It was a horrible, painful, traumatic experience that this guy went through. But what amazed me really was that 
This story is so personal, yet this film feels so universal. And Boyle, you know, you think how cinematically limited he was really by the story, how, you know, he was stuck in this tiny little environment, but it feels like a far bigger film. And he, he does that, I suppose. There's a kind of a, a, few, a few scenes where kind of Rawson's kind of like fantasizing stuff. We have this big storm sequence and things like that. But it just, the story, I think, is so bigger on a kind of humanitarian level that you can't fail really you sort of you, you, you cannot fail to recognize the fact that there is something of you in this guy and it really 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 made me appreciate other people in my life a lot more and you know, and I, I guess I come back to this patriotism, this kind of patriotism thing but you know, I, was, I was so pleased that Danny Boyle made this film when he didn't sell out and he didn't sort of kind of go down the normal route of kind of you know well you know I've got all, I've got this power now. I'll make a bigger, bigger film. And I, I bought I bought the um, a, a Blu-ray box set of his films, and I just sort of sat there and thought, God, I'd, if I do become a film director, I'd, I'd love to be like him. You know, constantly kind of playing in different genres. I mean, in this box set, it was Twenty Eight Days Later, One Hundred Twenty Seven Hours, Sunshine, and Slumdog Millionaire. You know, four completely different films, four you know almost completely different genres. Yet, you know, they're all unmistakably Danny Boyle films. And I, I, I personally, I preferred this film, Slumdog Millionaire, and I would actually say. It's my favourite one of his films, even more so than Train Spotting. Um, I think I, I, I don't honestly think it gets the love that it really deserves, and I think this is going to be one which, in a few years, people really go back to and really kind of uh, put in higher regard than I think. I mean, obviously, it got you know got a lot of recognition, you know, yeah, got some, some Oscar nominations, obviously, but I definitely think it's going to have a shelf life, and I think it's got a kind of a real uh, a longevity to it, which I, um, I I I can see it being one of those films where. Uh, in about ten years, people will look back and say, "Yeah, and that was a bit of a kind of a bit of a classic, a bit of a Shawshank Redemption, if you like." Okay, number six is a film I spoke about um, in one of my previous episodes. I think it was um, a couple of episodes ago, and, uh, which is how I ended this summer. And I'm not going to talk about it a great deal here because if you want to kind of hear my thoughts on it, go back and listen to the episode. Um, absolutely brilliant Russian film by Alexei Pavlovsky uh, about two scientists on an Arctic research station and. Uh, a kind of a thriller, a kind of a psychological film, um, absolutely brilliant, very entertaining. I think it's the Russian film that you can safely say you love. And like I said, if you want to find out more about that, I'm going to listen to the previous episode because I go into a lot more detail on that. Okay, so number five. And I went to the cinema to watch um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes and the trailer for this film came on and I was a little bit like, hmm, and... I kind of wanted to be excited for it, but I was also incredibly pessimistic. And I knew that the film's actually in production. One of my favourite TV series of all time, and I will be reviewing it um, very soon on the 24 Frames cast, is the Alec Guinness Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It is, without doubt, I think, probably the best spy television series I've ever seen in my entire life. I absolutely love it. And when I saw that the director of Let the Right One In was making a TV, uh, sorry, a film adaption of it, I was kind of excited, kind of, ooh, you know, do we really, do we really need it? And I, I, I kind of, kind of rationalised it in my head, which was the fact that obviously it wasn't going to be as good as a TV series. And I, I have talked about it before on the show, which is you have to kind of judge everything, you know, on its own individual merits. So come October. 
I packed myself off to the cinema. My girlfriend couldn't be bothered coming with me. Sat down and I watched Thomas Alfred and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It was one of those screenings at the cinema where you can tell half the audience are in the wrong film and it was so obvious that some people there thought they were there to see some kind of James Bond, Jason Bourne type thriller and essentially what they get is a load of middle-aged, not that likeable people sitting around in rooms trying to work out who a mole in British Secret Service is. For some it is the kind of stuff paint drying is made of. For other people like me, it is really the kind of cerebral type of film, which, which, which quite frankly, I needed it when it came out. And I was not disappointed. I absolutely loved this film. It is, of course, it is not as good as a TV series, but in a film in its own right, I think it is absolutely brilliant. Alfredson is such a great director he he just seems to nail the kind of the atmosphere of the piece and obviously you have Gary Oldman as George Smiley this kind of retired fumbling old kind of spy who's brought back in to find out who the mole in British Secret Service is and it could be anyone of four people obviously their code names are Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and it's not the type of film where you see doors being bust open and whatnot. it is a very methodical, a very bittersweet look at the spy services. And it's got a fantastic cast. Colin Firth again, John Hurt, Tom Hardy are all in there. And a whole host of other kind of people who you recognise from uh, various films and television series. But it is, it was absolutely gripping. And the strange thing was, I knew obviously going into it who the mole is. And it was weird because I was still absolutely gripped come the end of the film when the kind of the big revelation is made. And it, it was kind of, I guess, heartwarming in a way, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, sorry, because it made absolutely millions at the uh, British box office. And it played in the cinema for like two months. I, I, you know, I, every time I, kind of, I had to go through a cinema to go to work, and I used to see it out there all the time. And people just seemed to kind of really get what the film was about. And it was this kind of perfect tonic. And by no stretch of the mean, and I, I say at the end really of the show, but... 2011 wasn't a very good year for, I think, mature cinema goers. And by mature, I don't mean kind of anyone over the age of 50, but I think people who kind of want something a little bit more intellectual, a little bit more kind of a film that you have to work for a little bit harder. I don't think it's a very good year for us, to be honest with you. And the thing about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, it brought out casual cinema goers as well. People like my mum and dad went and watched it and you know, lots of their friends and things like that. And I'm not going to talk. I'm not really going to talk about too much about the story as such because obviously I'm going to be doing that in the next episode when I talk about the TV series. But if you kind of, it's not so much a who done it as well. You're not going to sort of sit there. You don't sort of sit there kind of constantly trying to piece together the puzzle. But what you do do is you sit there and you suddenly find yourself immersed in this world. And Gary Oldman, I think, nails George Smiley. I know someone who said they weren't going to go and watch it because in the novel, um, Smiley's quite a portly kind of a guy. And, Gary Oldman is it? Well, yeah, what a stupid bloody kind of reason not to go. It's almost as bad as mine not watching a film because it gets nominated for Oscars type of mentality. Um, Oldman is absolutely terrific, and this is a performance which I think he's needed. We kind of see him, and kind of we see flashes of Gary Oldman in in films sometimes, but this is a real film. He, he's in almost in every scene, and he absolutely nails the character. I think, and 
in one particular moment, there is a scene in the TV series where um, Alec Guinness goes to go and see his nemesis, which is the Russian spy master Carla. And it's told in a flashback, and Carla in the TV series is played by Patrick Stewart. And I was wondering, because it's such a pivotal scene in the, in the TV series, and I was wondering how they were going to do it in the film. And I won't give it away, but by God, I would never have thought that directorially Alfredson would actually come up with such an ingenious way of carrying the scene. And Gary Oldman is actually pivotal to its success, and he completely manages to do in about three minutes what a scene in the TV series took about 15 to do. Absolutely great stuff. And like I said, the, the supporting cast is brilliant as well, especially John Hurt, who plays Control, who is the head of MI6. And there was some, I, I think there's some stuff the TV series does slightly better um, the TV series. I'm sorry, the, I think there's some things in the film that, that actually does better than the TV series did. For example, they use this kind of office party in a flashback to kind of really tell the relationship between the characters, especially between George's wife and one of the... Uh, protagonists and it was a brilliant little device that I think really really worked well and it was such a, a brilliant creative decision and I, I was really kind of admiring after some work and I read an article in Sight and Sound about it and that you know, it sometimes takes a foreigner really to kind of tap into the kind of national psyche and he seems to have done that with this I mean you know Tinker Ted Soldier Spy takes place in a, a world the real world it isn't this kind of Bond universe. It's a real world where Britain is just a faded old empire run by a load of old fuddy duddies. And he seems to nail that. And the direction, the score, everything in the film works. I, you know, I know Empire Magazine gave it five out of five. And I'm a kind of, you know, I, I, I gave up on Empire a long time ago. But for me, this was a solid five out of five film. Absolutely fantastic. The type of film that I want to see at the cinema and hopefully i've heard they might do there's a couple of sequels to tinker tailor soldiers by and i really hope that they do the whole trilogy because i would i would absolutely love to sit down one day you know, it would be a nice cold winter's sunday perhaps and just watch all three back to back i think it would be a pretty damn good uh, way to spend some time but tinker tailor soldiers by it has come out in america now I, I think it's only got a limited release there and i actually yeah, i gave up listening to slash film a while back and i i went i noticed they had reviewed the film and i went back and had a listen to it and uh they absolutely hated it, um, which didn't really surprise me, to be honest with you. I don't think they kind of really got what it was trying to do or what it was trying to say and things like that. But I can heartily recommend it to anyone. I think um, if you love good cinema, you will enjoy Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. OK, so film number four is, I suppose, my companion piece to Inside Job. And again, this was a film that kind of came out of absolutely nowhere and blew me away and for a documentary i've watched this film now three times and each time i watch it i think i sort of like inside job i, I get a little bit more kind of angry really and it, for for a number of reasons that i will get into more details but number four on my list is alex gibney's documentary client nine the rise and fall of elliot spitzer now that name might not be a household name to people outside the United States. It's I, I, I completely admit it. I'd never heard of the guy until I watched this film. And Ed Spitzer was a uh, former governor of New York. And he was also its attorney general for a while. And he was being groomed, I suppose, for... Um, certainly, I don't know if he was going to become president. But certainly, I think he had a career in politics ahead of him. He was a Democrat um, politician. Um a Jewish lawyer, basically, who who took on the kind of organisations that people simply 
didn't want to go near, both financial and criminal. He went after the mafia, um, the big banks, to try and kind of clean Wall Street up. And, of course, he made hundreds of very, very, very powerful enemies. And he himself is no angel. He has a ferocious temper, we find out. He um, was uh, not afraid to hurl abuse at anyone who he had in his sights. But the thing about Spitzer was he kind of could see where the financial institutions were going. He could sort of, he knew really that people were behaving in a criminal way. And he took on these very noble causes. However, he had one vice, and that was high-class prostitutes. And Client 9, The Rise and Fall of Elliot Spitzer, is the most modern of morality tales. It is Shakespearean in its tragedy. And after I saw it, I wanted to email Spitzer or something just to kind of tell him of my admiration for him. Because this is a guy who, he does not hide away from what he has done. He is, he gives very good interviews. He is, by his own admission, a very flawed person. And he doesn't try and kind of give any kind of bullshit justification for why he was sleeping with these women. It's just a simple fact that he wanted a good fuck every now and then and decided to pay for it, despite the fact he was married with kids. Now, it raises such, I think, fundamental kind of questions. We live in, I think, in a very morally grey age. And on the one hand, Spitzer was going after people who were really kind of screwing on. Yeah, I mean, we're not talking about kind of just money as well. Yes, you know, he'd go after companies who were polluting the environment. He would ensure that poor workers' investments weren't kind of m messed around with by the various banks and things like that. His causes were so noble, yet at the same time he was doing something, participating really in one of the most, I guess, shameful um, vices, which is you know, prostitution. We can, you know, some people kind of differentiate prostitution from the fact that you, you can you have this image of the girl on the street as being different to the one who earns a thousand dollars a night. It's still exploitation of women. It's still, I think, a very kind of almost evil thing, which kind of the what keeps on happening. It is still, I think, a form of misogyny on women. And you know, obviously there's a lot of these girls, you especially see the girls, you know, some of the high-class prostitutes who work for the agency that Spitzer was using. And they, they sort of, I think they think that they're um, in control and what have you, but really they're slaves to money, which, and they are, they, they're getting that money by selling their souls and their bodies, really. But it, it asks the question, you can we still, can someone still be moral and have immorality about them? You know, I know from my own my, my own uh, kind of circumstances. I know that I kind of I think I have quite a good code. I will, <laughs> I do kind of give money to charity. Yet I do also have my vices, not prostitution, but I do have my vices. But you know, I suppose it's different when someone like Spitz is going around telling these people to clear up their acts, and by night he's sleeping with prostitutes. But the funny thing about this story is that he made his enemies that were simply so powerful, and. The nature of his downfall was clearly politically motivated. And, you know, sex scandals are something which are kind of fairly common in politics. And some people do a lot worse, as we do see in the film, and carry on to have political careers. Spitzer hasn't. He has really kind of shot himself in the foot. He doesn't have any kind of political career now. It's, he does actually appear in Inside Job as well, as one of the speakers on it. But it's a tragedy, I think a personal tragedy and a tragedy as well for a lot of other people because like I said he does do some fantastic things in the film to really help but in a way I think the film vindicates him 
in that there's no getting around it. The fact that he was on the side of right in many respects and the kind of the people that he comes up against are so unlikable. The head of AIG Insurance, who his name escapes me now, but it kind of going back to inside job as well, you know, how detached these kind of the kind of financial elite are. At the end of the film, he's actually decrying the fact that he has barely any money left and he's kind of asked how much he has left. And he says, oh, virtually nothing, $200 million. You know, that's the type of person who has so much control and power over other people. And Spitzer tried to get him, people like him, to clean up their acts, to make put things in place so that there wouldn't be this fantastic risk. And of course, it all went hideously wrong. If I was being a little bit critical of Alex Kibney in the film... He clearly idolises Spitzer and I think <laughs> the film does have a degree of objectivity to it. You know, like I said, Spitzer doesn't kind of try and gloss up what he's done. He doesn't sort of try and kind of theorise it too much. He basically, I, I just think he was a guy who liked a good shag and, you know, whatever. But Gibney, I think, kind of, he, he just tries to paint him out of a bit of a saint. I've read a lot of things about Spitzer and, you know, the guy, the guy was fairly... Um, how can we put it, uh, forthright a lot of the time with the people. But that being said, he comes across as a thoroughly likeable person. And I was really kind of sucked in on this film. It has it has the kind of plot that a screenwriter couldn't come up with. Whether or not you are Republican, Democrat, I think you have to agree Spitzer was a person who, his heart was in the right place. And I certainly, like I said, I think he was vindicated in many respects by what has happened in the world since this film. Now, perhaps, you know, I don't... Could he have really changed everything that that much? I don't know. But, you know, certainly his cause was right. And it, it's interesting when I was watching it because I, it reminded me of um, Winston Churchill and how I watched a TV series once and it was about Great Britons and there was um, people talking about, you know, the kind of the, the icons of Britain. And there was one guy who refused to acknowledge Winston Churchill as being a Great Britain on the basis of his treatment of the suffragettes um, during the movement for women to get the vote in Britain. And it, it suddenly dawned on me, you know, what, what a stupid standpoint to make, you know, to, to kind of dismiss someone on that. Basically, basically yeah, you know, he shouldn't have kind of um, treated the suffragettes the way he did. But here was the man who went up against fascism and Hitler and won and obviously, you know, the suffragettes in the end, you know, they were successful in their campaign. And Spitz is a bit like that, you know. Do we kind of damn him just because he slept with prostitutes? And do we ignore the fact that he did all these, well, tried to do all these great things and did do some great things? You know, he did save a lot of people's money. He did bring prosecutions against companies that were falling foul of certain regulations. You know, do we kind of wipe that off, wipe that out of history, I suppose, just because at night he was enjoying the company of some high-class cobalt? I, I, I'm not comfortable, I don't think, with... Um, doing that and i think it brings about a kind of a double standard in us a lot of the time as well you know we all do things which we shouldn't and we kind of we're quite quick to judge other people and client nine has right before like spitzer i think it's one of the films as well it really kind of like shows the the, the the bleak side of modern celebrity culture you know we are you know we've, we we are i think scandal obsessed and you know that's an obsession which i don't think kind of really got away but it seems to get it gets worse you have channels now just dedicated to um, basically character assassination of celebrities and famous people and things like that. And Spitz was one of those who kind of, he fell into that trap. And the worst thing is he's so much above all that bloody nonsense. You know, it's a film that I think asks some very fundamental questions about our society. And 
it only got a very small um, cinema release here. You can pick it up for about £4, I think, off Amazon. And I wouldn't even say it's worth a rental. I think you need to own this film. And again, I kind of go back to the whole kind of cinematic documentary. This really does have a kind of um, a feature film-like quality to it. And don't get me wrong, I don't think Ghibli tries to kind of like ramp up the uh, the drama factor by tenor and a thing like that. But it's just the story in of itself is gripping. And I think... Of all the documentaries I have seen this year, this one was probably my favourite. I've seen it a number of times. I even got my girlfriend to watch it. She absolutely loved it as well. But you know, do let me know if, you, if you're over in America. Like, let me know what kind of the public perception of Elliot Spitzer is, because I would be quite intrigued to know. I've seen him on a few kind of news programmes here and stuff like that, and he really does come across as a um, pretty intelligent guy and someone who I think was kind of worth listening to. But Okay, moving on now to my top three. Now, as I said, these three are in order. Although I dare say, were I to watch them again, um, I might kind of swap and change them around. But as of today, these were my top three films of 2011. Last year, my favourite film was Nicholas Winding Refn, Valhalla Rising. A, I suppose, a Viking film, slasher film, actually, I would suppose, if you were to believe the Blu-ray cover. But it was something far more interesting and complex and even perplexing than that i can't really i don't i don't know the best way of describing it i would say an art house film about a one-eyed mute killing machine who gets on a boat with some crusaders and might end up in america that that very loosely is how i describe it it doesn't do justice to what an incredible film valhalla rising was i've watched it several times since and i, I just seem to kind of fall in love with it even more so when I went to go and watch Drive at the cinema, again, I would just like to point out another film that did really well at the box office here and played for quite a long time. And I think, again, like Tinker Tailor Soldier Side, shows that um, if you put intelligent cinema on, people will come and watch it. And by God, it was a case of love at first sight. One of my favourite filmmakers is Michael Mann. And this was, I suppose, the Michael Mann film that I have been wanting to see for the past few years. From the opening set piece to the very end, I was absolutely in love with this film. Ryan Gosling plays an unnamed stunt driver who by night moonlights as a getaway driver for heists. And he falls in love with the girl next door, played by Carrie Mulligan, and tries to help her and her son. Her partner's actually in prison to kind of make ends meet. Her partner comes out. And he kind of gets involved with Gosling and they plan a heist together. This is one of those films where it could have been four hours long and I would have still have been absolutely in love with it. I don't really, I don't really, I don't think I've ever seen Gosling in anything before Drive. And he has a real presence to it. And they created him in reference, a real, I guess, a character that is so cinematic in that he could only exist on the film these people they don't exist in any kind of other format other than cinema it's a very much the man with no name he chews a toothpick and things like that looks ridiculously cool and his heart rate probably never gets above 40 beats a minute when he's out doing heists but coupled with a supporting cast that includes brian cranston albert brooks and christina hendrix this was a cinematic treat and i am going to do I think I'm going to go into a lot more detail quite soon because I'm going to do a bit of a retrospective, I think, on Reffin. And uh, I will um, probably delve into it a lot deeper than that. But I don't know anyone that has seen Drive and not 
absolutely loved it. By far in advance, my favourite soundtrack of the year by Cliff Martinez. I think it's perhaps, if I was being hypercritical of Refn, I do think he is someone who, at present in his career, he seems to mimic other filmmakers. We didn't say he's an original, but I don't think he's found his true voice. And I think I'm, I'm, I'd be quite interested to see what he does next. I want to kind of see him sort of be, I sort of try to do something a lot more personal or something, you know, a lot more original perhaps in terms of who he is as a filmmaker it is michael mandel over the the story reminds me a lot of thief actually and um yeah, if you're making a, a favorable comparison to thief i think you're pretty on much on the right track i would say on a, on a given day it's coming out on blue actually in about two weeks in britain and I, I, i'm kind of dreading watching it because i will probably listen to this episode and sort of think well, actually no it drives my number one now but for the time being, at least, I, one of the reasons why I didn't want to stick it at number one is because I didn't want to do, do two uh, reference films in a row as my favourite film. But Drive seems as well, I, I, it really kind of struck a chord with a lot of people who I know who watched it. Who, who I know there's a woman who's actually suing, I don't know if it's true or not, apparently she's suing because she watched a trailer and it was so misleading, it wasn't the film she thought she was getting. And I know a few people I said, just go and watch Drive. And they looked at the, the uh, poster even and were like, well, that just looks stupid. And they watched it and were like, oh, my God, that was absolutely brilliant. Thank me so much because they were going to go and watch some other piece of crap. You know, again, I, I, you know, I dig it because it didn't have a particularly huge budget yet. It seems to have made quite a lot of money at the box office. There is a little bit of talk of the you know, Oscars of Albert Brooks in particular. But, um, yeah, I, great to see as well a foreign director go to America and not kind of sell out in this kind of way that John Woo did you know this is still you know it's got a kind of a good independent sensibility to it it's got a kind of a killer ending which I think you kind of um you wouldn't normally get if this had a massive budget this could easily you, know, you can imagine this being a Nicolas Cage film actually or something like that you know quadruple the budget and god knows what but instead it, it seems to kind of be exactly the type of film it wants to be in you know, thank God the studio just kind of let these guys get on with it because they really have made... I, I don't know if I'd go so far to say it's a modern classic, but I certainly think it is a pretty... I, I guess a frustrating glimpse of just how good American cine can, cinema can be because let's not really kind of beat around the bush. It's not been a great year for film, and I think this is kind of... gives us hope that uh, there might be more like it to come. Okay, so number two. Now... It feels a little bit fraudulent of me to put this film in at number two because it's quite strange because I've only watched it the once and I haven't really been that inclined to go back to it since, although I am going to quite soon. But I've heard so many people say that this film is a load of pretentious twaddle and they've dismissed it on various reasons. And I, it was it was so predictable. I was talking to someone about it at work and they said, Oh, but when it gets to the dinosaur bit, and I just sort of sat there thinking, please don't kind of continue because I'm going to end up not liking you. And of course, the film I'm talking about is Terence Malick's Tree of Life. I don't know really what more I can kind of say about it other than that. When you watch a film and you are literally thinking about it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten days later, and... You're walking around looking at the world in a slightly different way than you did before. You know that perhaps you have seen something which is an experience of which you've never really had before. I don't know at this stage if I can really sort of say what Tree of Life is actually about, you know, categorically. But what I do know is that it felt strange to be in the hands of a filmmaker 
who really says bollocks to every single rule of cinema you can think of. I mean, who 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 makes a film set in suburbia in the 50s and then a third of the way through suddenly shows us the creation of the universe? Who really does that? And you know, obviously, this is the kind of thing I hate when people say, oh, it's a pretentious film and it's a load of nonsense. You know, name a film that's ever done something as bold and as brilliant as that before. You know, na name a film director who's really tried to kind of push things like Terence Malick does in The Tree of Life. I think it is a career best for Brad Pitt. And I, I, it seems quite an easy sort of thing to say, oh, well, you know, it's his only Terence Malick film, therefore it's his best film. But I honestly think this is the best I've ever seen Brad Pitt. And he's so much more than this kind of poster boy, which he kind of was in the you know the late 90s or what have you. I've always liked Brad Pitt as an actor. I think he's fantastic. But this, I think, was a, such a different performance from him. And obviously it's a kind of... You're in the hands of, you know, a master filmmaker. The rest of the cast is absolutely superb as well. Jessica Chastain, uh, Hunter McCracken and Laramie Epler, who play the uh, children in the film. But just from a sheer kind of directorial point of view, you know, Malik finds his films in the editing. He doesn't kind of, you know, plan them out the way that you would think. He doesn't kind of like write page after page after page of script. He kind of goes and you shoots really kind of as much footage as he can and it might I should imagine making work, working with him must be quite kind of a challenging thing but then in the editing room he makes these incredible works of art and I do call them works of art they truly are. and I know it's something, something that kind of like really kind of annoys some actors I know Sean Penn was quite unhappy because I thought his I think he thought his role was going to be a lot bigger but um I, I think I will get into the tree of life a lot more um on another episode, and I keep saying that, but I am going to do a Terence Malick episode. I, I need to see this film again, and I need to kind of watch it you know, alone. I was watching it with my girlfriend at the time, and I think I need to see it alone, without any interruptions, without any distractions, to really kind of get my head around it. And it seems strange to put it at number two and say it's my second favourite film of the year, but just from a sheer visual point of view, I was absolutely transfixed. And it's really weird, you know, this kind of journey I'm on at the moment where I'm tr you know, trying to get into filmmaking and stuff like that. It it kind of makes you not want to bother because you sort of think to yourself, I could never, ever, ever accomplish anything like that. And perhaps it's, you know, a bit you know, negative. But, you know, to even try and mimic something like this, you'd fall flat. It is so original and so daring and so different to anything you will see out there at the moment. You know, you can call it art house, you can try and put it in whatever box you want, but fundamentally, the only kind of category it belongs in is Terence Malick. And to be honest with you, I can't recall seeing anything like this before. And the fact that I'm even saying that, I think, is a, um, a testament, really, to how incredible a film Tree of Life is. And I would heartily recommend actually listening to um, Mike Dawson's podcast, Leftfield Cinema, in which he goes in, um, did an episode quite recently on it, in which he kind of delves deeper into the film that I ha will hope to do one day but it's a fantastic episode I think and Mike always has a very uh, informed and um, interesting opinion on film so do check out his podcast okay so my number one film of 2011 well of course it is everyone's favorite love triangle yeah that's right Twilight Breaking Dawn part one the scene where Bella is spit roasted by a werewolf and a vampire ranks amongst the greatest things I have ever seen in a cinema. Of course, I am taking the piss. 
but my favourite film is A Love Triangle. And no, it has absolutely nothing to do with Twilight. It was, of course, Mark Romanek's Never Let Me Go. Come the final credits of Never Let Me Go, I turned to my girlfriend and we both looked at each other with this kind of, oh my God, that was one of the harshest films I've ever had to sit through in all my life. And I'm kind of telling you right now, entertainment is not something you will probably get out of this film. What you will get, however, is one of the most thought-provoking experiences you might ever have watching a film. And I don't say that kind of lightly. I was genuinely left numb by this film. Now, the story is of um, three young people, Kathy, played by Carrie Mulligan, Tommy, played by Andrew Garfield, and Ruth Kieran Knightley. And they, the film doesn't actually start off with them. It starts off with their children, played by different actors. But it follows their life. And it starts off in a boarding school. And there is something slightly off about this world. We hear at the start that the human lifespan has increased greatly due to a scientific breakthrough. And that basically, these people being, these young children, sorry, being brought up in the boarding school are in fact going to be donors for other human beings and throughout their life they are simply kept away from the rest of the society and they are completely normal human beings there's nothing that differentiates them between anyone else they have the same feelings they are physically exactly the same as you and I however their life will be cut short when their organs will be harvested for other people and eventually once they've given as many organs as they can survive on they will simply die. Tommy is stolen from Kathy by Ruth as a child and Kathy spends most of her teenage years and 20s longing after Tommy and eventually Ruth begins the begins the process of giving up her organs until she will what the euphemism in the film is for dying which is complete and her kind of parting wish to Tommy and Kathy is that they have the life together that she denied Kathy when she stole Tommy off her. The fact that the film is a love triangle and we have these kind of, I suppose, really kind of Andrew Garfield, Kira Knightley and Kerry Mulligan, who are these sort of, um, I guess they're kind of the up and coming breed of young actor and they're you know, obviously kind of very beautiful people, but this isn't a cheesy kind of romance in any stretch of the imagination. It is science fiction but that's kind of science fiction that it doesn't have any laser guns or anything like that. The only kind of like, I suppose the science to it is the fact that they have to kind of um, clock in every night when they uh, leave their house by raising their wrists up to this kind of silver disc. That's the only kind of thing which is kind of vaguely kind of technologically advanced. Um, what kind of really got me about Never Let Me Go was the fact that Kathy and Tommy live in a world where this thing is just expected to happen and I know a lot of people it's really strange actually because when I see visitors to my blog um, I always track you know how they've got there and one of the search phrases that people type in is why don't Kathy and Tommy run in Never Let Me Go and I think people are kind of missing the point because what the world of Never Let Me Go is about it's where this has been accepted it is simply part of life and it's a hurdle which some people can't get over when they watch it. They um, they sort of think, well, you know, if they were that desperate to live, they would find a way of getting out. You know, and they, we, we, we don't know what the kind of the punishments are or anything like that. All we know in the film is that they're kind of free to kind of come and go as they please. However, 
at some stage in their life, they will have to start giving their organs up for donation until they complete or die, as it were. And I know a lot of people who conceptually can't get their heads around this. And they sort of say, well, if they were that desperate, they'd, they'd go and things. But you have to look, and like all good science fiction does, it twists the kind of world around us ever so slightly to present something quite new. Now, there's so many, I suppose, analogies you can use to sort of kind of describe what this is, but I kind of think, you know, something about food, you know, the next time you eat a beef burger, you don't think about the fact that the animal that has uh, given its life so you can enjoy that beef, but you don't think about what it goes through. You don't think about the terror it must have felt as it was kind of brought into the abattoir. Because you see any footage of animals going into abattoir, they don't exactly stroll in there, please, you know. I think they get a vague idea of what's going on. But you don't think about it, you just accept it. We just get over the fact that animals are slaughtered wholesale for our convenience. You never think about it. Now, let's say, for example, you needed a new liver and you were on your deathbed and then suddenly the door crashed open and someone walked in with a new liver. Would you question where it had come from? Would you, If you were standing, sat there sorry, with your family all around you and you knew you were about to die, if someone walked in and offered you this, would you say, well, you know, would you want more backstory on it or would you say get it in me so you could carry on your life? So let's say that happens, you survive. And then you found out that that organ was sold by someone in India because he wanted to pay for his family to get out of the slums and he gave his own life up for it. You might be kind of wrapped with guilt, but the simple fact of the matter would, you'd say, well, that person made their decision and I benefited from it. Would you, would really, if that happened wholesale, would if we were able to prong our lives, if we were able to kind of spend more time with our children, would it be something that would be that outlandish as is presented in Never Let Me Go. I would argue it probably wouldn't be. And you know, let's see, let's just see how far we've slipped in terms of morality over the past few years. Our leaders, the Prime Minister of Britain, the President of the United States, knowingly allowed other human beings to be tortured. Now take out the equation that you know these people were apparently terrorists or things like that. These people were tortured maimed and injured in the full knowledge of our leaders and it's a disgusting thing i think it's a an abominable um state to be in but you know has it actually well you know has it saved any lives we don't know you know we you know, they always use that to kind of tip what if there's a nuclear bomb that's going to go off. they always use that stupid analogy and i think i think that's a, a really poor example to be honest with you but yeah we don't know yeah they might have done they might have beaten a confession out of someone who and it, it has saved many lives but the simple fact of the matter is, you know, we live in a world where I think moral boundaries are being tested. And I think it gets to the stage now where, you know, what if we can kind of grow meat, which is one thing which, you know, and I know some scientists in Japan are saying they can do. Well, you know, I saw a debate on television where a vegetarian was saying that they, they still wouldn't eat the meat because it's still technically, you know, um, substance from another living creature. But I think. What I so loved about Never Let Me Go was it made me think about morality and it made me really question the meaning of our lives. And the thing about Kathy and Tommy and Ruth is that there is a meaning in their life and that is that they have a very, very clear idea of what is going to happen to me. And effectively, they are helping other people live 
it's an incredibly, I suppose, if you've got to die for something, you know, keeping someone else alive might seem, you know, a, a, a kind of a good payoff. But these are people who have a very clear purpose in their life. And for the most part, human beings don't. And we sort of spend our lives searching for a meaning. Now, sometimes we find, well, some people find comfort in the fact that they have religion to kind of be, I suppose, their kind of map throughout their life they kind of like take comfort in the fact that they think they are part of a bigger plan i.e god's plan i'm an atheist and i don't believe in any of that nonsense i i think it's a ridiculous conceit that you know your life is being managed by this kind of celestial being i'm i'm quite happy with the fact that i am a biological fluke that just happens to be sentient and it would be nice to think that my life has a greater meaning and that I do do something incredible with it. But you know, it has meaning to other people. My girlfriend, my family, my brother, my friends. You know, it has meaning to them, I suppose. You know, they care about me. I care about them. Is, you know, is that not enough? You know? And it is, in a bizarre sense, I suppose, a film about what happens when there is a very, very set plan in your life. And you cannot escape that plan. And in many respects, it is a completely terrifying idea that there is a very set plan in life we don't want there to, for someone to say in x amount of years this will happen to you how would it affect the way we are now if someone walked in and said i know for a fact that in four years you're going to die of cancer what would you do you know, how would you act what would you what, how, how would that change your relationships i personally think it's better not knowing and never let me go is a very cruel film in a matter of in many respects because the relationship between kathy and tommy it is doomed and the film does an absolutely incredible job of letting you and them believe there might be hope for them. And I'm not going to give you any spoilers as to what that is or kind of how contextually that works or anything like that. But whilst I was watching it, I, I, I felt very, very kind of comfortable in the fact that I don't ever want there to be this kind of master plan to my life. And it really annoys me, actually. One of the, a podcast I listen to occasionally is uh, More Than One Listener. Um, hosted by Tyler Smith and I can't remember the other guy's name, Josh something, I can't remember, but there are two guys, um, Tyler actually used to, uh, also hosts the Battleship Pretension, which is another podcast which I used to listen to, but I, I, sometimes I, when I'm listening to them talk, because they're both relig obviously very religious guys and they kind of talk about films and they come from a Christian perspective, and I've heard some of the guests on their show sort of saying that God decided that he didn't want them to carry on doing a certain something, or you know, they kind of attributed a massive career change to, to God and this kind of thing, and it I, I really, it really makes me feel very uncomfortable when people talk like that. And this year for me has been a very strange year in that I've become quite, um, I've always been an atheist, but I've become very kind of aware of my atheism. I've become very comfortable with the fact that you know, I don't believe in anything. And that's, you know, a lot of people, they sort of, I've, I've had debates with people who are believers who sort of say, well, you know, how do I find meaning in the world around me? And I do just by the fact, by living my life, that's the meaning. You know, I'm quite happy with the fact that I might be quite inconsequential in this world. But to me anyway, I just enjoy going about my daily routine. Never Let Me Go is, I guess to me, a kind of the ultimate lesson in why knowing one's fate is an awful thing and you can really turn it into my friend's dad at the moment um so my dad's friend at the moment is currently um dying of cancer and you know, he's been told he only has a few months left and it, it's just thinking about that thinking and you know, knowing that you are you know coming to the end of your life 
it, to me, it's a, that that is a horrible, terrifying prospect, and something which uh, you know really makes me appreciate the fact that I'm healthy and um, you know I'm kind of you know, you know, touch wood you know, remain healthy. From a purely cinematic point of view as well, I absolutely think this is a stunning work of art. Mark Romanek does a fantastic job of composing and framing his shots. And what I love about it is it's a science fiction, but it doesn't have the traditional science fiction trappings. This isn't kind of like whizzing cars everywhere. It just looks like kind of a, an England I know and I can I can recognise as a kind of a pastely look to the cinematography. And the Blu-ray is absolutely stunning. And the picture quality is unbelievable. And uh, I was really... It, it almost feels like a bit of a dream, this film. And I, I was waiting for the kind of... I wanted this big Logan's Run moment. And there's this kind of factor about it where... Romanek isn't trying to show you that film. It's been done before. He has created this world and saying these are the rules by which these people live. And it's about getting used to those rules. It's an incredibly brave, I think, film to have made, especially in the kind of, you know, we we love... You know, with, with these actors as well, you know, with Kerry Mulligan, Andrew Garfield, Kieran Knight, you, you, this isn't the type of film which teenagers were going to flock to and you'd be sat there kind of um, cheering on. You know, it's a despite the fact it's got those actors in it, I think it's a very brave, almost dare I say art house type sensibility. And I mean art house and the fact that this isn't in any way bound by any kind of genre convention that you think it might be. And come the final credits, I was left absolutely numb by it. A devastating film. I would, I know it's early on in this decade, but I would I would be very very surprised if I see many films that are better over the next few years than this. Absolutely, bar none. Not only my favourite film of last year, but possibly one of my favourite films of all time, and something which um, you you can just go back and enjoy on so many different levels. If it is that kind of like intellectual, slightly kind of like higher level of the kind of the, the, the grander meaning behind it is that I don't claim to be saying that what I'm saying is the kind of you know the uh, any kind of ultimate truth it's just my interpretation of it but absolutely worth checking out um, it came and went in cinemas you know it didn't do very good business and I would really really would not expect it to either because I don't think this is the type of thing that's going to have you rolling in the arse but if you want good intelligent science fiction check out Never Let Me Go because I don't think you'll be disappointed so that is going to be it for my review of 2011. Um, I suppose a few honourable mentions might not go amiss. Um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes I really enjoyed. Neek's Cut-Off, which I reviewed last time, really loved. Um, TT, Close to the Edge, a documentary I'll be looking at in the next episode. Um, and The Adjustment Bureau, which was a film that really kind of took me by surprise. I kind of dig that quite a lot. I would also, I don't know how fashionable it is to say, really. I don't really have heard many people talk about it. I really enjoyed X-Men First Class. I like Thor. Um, another one which uh, I suppose kind of um, some people seem to kind of violently hate I really kind of quite enjoyed it I know it's not a great film but there's a few others to think which kind of don't immediately jump to mind but I don't think 2011 was a particularly great cinema cinema year um, were it a wine you'd probably give it to your guests later on in the evening when they've had a bit to drink and they kind of don't really realise that they're kind of having the uh, cheaper stuff this year is going to be a lot different for me because I am going to see a lot more films because I'll have the time and um, I think my uh, best of next year will perhaps be a little bit more um, harder to compile but for this year anyway um, with relating to the podcast it's going to be a lot busier um, I can promise you that because um, 
I really kind of want to get more shows out there and uh, you know thankfully now the uh, the time is there to do it so if you want to come over to the blog it's 24framescast.blogspot.com you can follow me on twitter at 24framescast and you can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com until next time take care and many thanks for listening bye